Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Fascinating Nouns. We are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now as we arrive at this curious nexus point, we explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. All right, so let's get some of the promotion out of the way. I always forget to do this, and I think it's really important to keep people connected to the show. Now, first of all, the home base is the website, www.fascinatingnouns.com. Now, there you can sign up for the newsletter, which is free, and gives you a weekly update on what's happening. You can join the Twitter follower, the Twitter nation of Fascinating Nouns followers. You can go there, at Daniel J. Glenn. Also, there is, of course, Facebook. Fascinating Nouns. It's labeled as a TV show, which up until a month ago was not accurate. It is now. Now, if you have a show topic or you think you'd make a good guest or you just want to converse with me, I answer all my email, dan at fascinatingnouns.com. Now, if you want to expand on the topics and the people that you've heard on the show, my YouTube channel is Daniel J. Glenn. Um, obviously, you have to go to YouTube for that. Pinterest account, Fascinating Noun. I don't know why they wouldn't let me put Fascinating Nouns, but... That's where we are. Lots of pictures from. There's lots of people we've had on the shows where, where the pictures just tell the story better than words ever could. I don't know if that's poetic or if that's just stupid. I'm on the fence right now. So I think that's everything. Now let's get on to the topic, which is forensic accounting. Now I know I said the word accounting, so I don't want your eyes to glaze over and roll into the back of your head. This is the interesting stuff. This is where fraud happens. These are the creative ways in which people can take money from large corporations or even small privately owned businesses. And what my guest tonight, Alex Kwachansky, he goes in and he figures out how this crime was committed, nails it to people and, and solves the crime. I mean, wraps it up just in, in, in under an hour, 44 minutes to be exact. So this is perfect for television. This is good stuff. This is exciting stuff. We're going to talk about some of the big scandals, Enron, Bertie Madoff, uh, the, the 2008 crash, all that stuff, plus the small things. Like, what is cooking the books? Is it two sets of books? Is fire involved? Does it taste delicious? Does it require culinary skills to pull off? These are the questions we are going to answer. All right, enough drivel. Alex, thank you so much for being on the program. It's my pleasure. So you are a forensic accountant, is that right? I actually go in earlier than forensics. Uh, that's part of the confusion. Forensic accounting conducts work after, the f after fraud and deceptive activities have been detected. My work is really to detect them and resolve the issues and restabilize the company before the forensic accounting is even looked at. Well, so, I mean, do you think there's a TV show like, you know, CSI or anything like that, accounting edition? Uh, I'd not be as interesting because there's no dead bodies. Well, I think that the dead bodies uh, aren't there, but the hidden bodies are. Because in conducting fraud, among other things that sometimes do happen, is that someone gets murdered. It's the only business transaction where you have that kind of kind of risk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, have you ever found a dead body? Uh, thankfully, not except at morgues. <laughs> That's where a lot of them hang out. Yeah. So let's let's define fraud in in general terms. Now, you know, we're, we're speaking to a, a a regular run of the mill audience and not an accounting firm. So, don't use too much jargon if you don't mind. Uh, not I, there will be no jargon. Okay. So what is fraud in general terms? Fraud is the equivalent of shooting from the lip instead of shooting from the hip. It's a form of robbery where instead of threatening someone with bodily injury, 
you're actually abusing your relationship with that person by deceiving them and stealing from them. In other words, a complete stranger walking down the street cannot defraud you because they don't know you and you don't know them. Hmm. So the, the risk is it's the person you know and have a certain amount of trust in who is the one who can deceive you. Uh, so now with this, it is very similar to a murder. Let's just compare it to that because murder is pretty sexy in the crime world. You need you, There's a couple of necessary requirements. Uh, and I believe you said there's motivation, credibility, opportunity, you know, things like all the things you need for a murder. Uh, well, it's it's not it's similar to a murder. Only the victim uh, isn't aware that they're being murdered, <laughs> and they have, they have to understand that they are. And amazingly enough, the most difficult part of my work is to inform someone that they are being deceived and robbed from, and because they're being deceived and robbed by someone they know and they trust, so they're being murdered financially from someone who they absolutely refuse to believe it's true. Now, one of the, one of the themes that I kind of gathered from, from reading about this is there's, a, for me anyway, there's a thin line between what is illegal and what is unethical. We're going to go over a couple of types of fraud, and some of them, they seemed unethical, but I'm not sure if they're illegal necessarily. Well, that's the complication of it. Uh, unethical means that you're cheating somebody, but there's no law written that makes it illegal. So fraud is fraud is is a matter of ethics until you cross an actual written law uh, that says you cannot do that. Hmm. Um, well, so let's let's talk about some of the types of fraud that um, that you specialize in. So, um, like abuse of company funds. Now, how would someone know that they're they're doing? Can and you can do some of these things accidentally, right? Uh, or is it require absolutely required knowledge to to do it? It it definitely requires knowledge to do it. And usually it's secretly acquired knowledge. Uh, for example, somebody abuses their authority. They have, they have authority where they can sign for a up to a certain amount of money that the company is going to disperse. And then they know roughly where they can, how high they can go to steal, where no one's going to examine what they're doing. Hmm. And, they, and they actually have the authority to do that, and therefore anyone working under them is not going to question it, even if they think they should be questioning it. Right. So there's a lot of so the, the the corporate power structure also plays a part in this too. Like people who don't question the things people do above them, for I assume for the belief that they may lose their job. Well, that's the number one fear, uh, is that you're going to hear the two words you never ever want to hear. It's called you're fired. Mm. So most people will look the other way, and often they will have knowledge of what's going on, but be afraid to say something, mm. because they don't want to lose their job. In a power structure, the most powerful person in a company is a majority shareholder owner of a privately held company because having the majority of the shares because they own the company means that nobody can vote them out of the company. Nobody can remove them from the company, even if they're the ones who are robbing the company, and that happens very frequently. It is almost impossible to remove them from the company. And I imagine this happens a lot. I mean, I know stories of people who've worked for smaller privately owned companies uh, and people who deal in cash, especially. Uh, you know, some of it can just disappear. Uh, is there anything necessarily wrong with that? I mean, it is your company and you are making that money. It is your company, but that doesn't mean you don't have obligations. And if you're stealing money out of a company and causing the company to lose money and you're not declaring the income that you took out of the company, 
the government is going to have something to say on it, whether you own the shares or not, because mm. that, that's called tax evasion. Mm. Uh, in the same way, if you have a lender, if you have a bank loan or, uh, or, or a private lender, and the private lender has certain security because they have collateral to be able to insure their loan, and they're anticipating certain levels of revenue. Well, if those issues start to change, which is, I, I get a lot of work out of in that area, uh, the lender becomes quite concerned about what's about the continuation of the company, and if they find out that their borrower is actually their, the thief, uh, they become very unpleasant, but very often they also be, become very insecure. Mm. Well, it seems to me that, like, you, you know, when we talked about illegal versus unethical, it seems like that as long as the federal government's getting their piece of the action, that it doesn't really matter what goes on. Like as long as you're, if you're, you know, if you're declaring it as income tax and they're getting their cut, like how concerned are they after that fact? Well, if if all the income is being declared and they're getting their their cut, there really is no concern on their part. Their concern is when you're filing false falsely declared tax returns. Mm -hmm. However, even though that would be illegal and taking money may not be illegal, uh, it puts you in jeopardy, not criminally in jeopardy, but civilly in jeopardy of other parties that are actually reliant on that income for their contractual ob obligations to be uh, to, to be paid. So then who would come after them? You'd have to, someone would have to file a civil suit then? You'd, you basically, you have to file a civil suit. Uh, if you haven't broken any criminal laws, but you are endangering an asset, endangering collateral, endangering the operation of the company, or for, for example, what happens fairly frequently is that when you're licensing the use of intellectual property, such as trademarks and copyrights, and you're not paying your contractual amount, they will definitely come after you, and sometimes they can come after you in such ways that can pretty much paralyze the entire company. Hmm. Now, it's not criminally illegal. You're in violation of your, of your civil contract, and they come after you civilly. Hmm. Okay, I guess that makes sense. Um, now, what about what about arson? So, people who would like burn down a house for uh, for the insurance money. How do you how do you prove that they that they burned it down themselves? I mean, do you is that something you would come in on, or is that just something that you deal with? Uh, I wouldn't come in on the arson part of it. There would be arson specialists who would look at the company and try to detect w how the fire started, where it started, etc. My part of it would be to look at the company's operations to find out if there was a motivation. Mm. Uh, and, and the same goes, by the way, for, for, uh, for artificial flood damage, mm. where I've, I've had some experience. So wh how does that work? I mean, do people just get buckets and toss them in their basement, or what happens? Uh, no, it usually starts with an innocent act. Uh, the last one I worked on was at a, a furniture manufacturer. Mm. Oh, that makes and, sense. Uh, Wood furniture, then, I assume. Well, it was, yeah, furniture invo involves wood and involves fabric. Mm -hmm. And the roof caved in during a rainstorm. And the adjuster didn't actually arrive for another week. And the company already was in financial trouble. Mm. And they had already filed two other losses with the insurance company, which made them somewhat suspicious. And I began to look at how much inventory they probably would have had on hand at the time of the, of the damage. And I asked questions such as, well, if it took you a week to get there, uh, did you do any water tests as to the water on the top versus the water on the bottom of the pile? In other words, did they put more stuff on top of there and sprinkle it with, with the tap water as yeah. opposed to nice, clear rainwater that wouldn't be fluoridated? Right. 
Oh, so you so you go in there with chemical test. So it is like forensics. I mean, do you have people coming in testing it chemically? Oh yeah, you ha- you have to bring in specialists who who will examine it. And also, for example, I I said uh, were they using were were they they damaging seasonal goods because it was three months after Christmas, so all the returns would have been <laughs> would have been there. Yeah. Uh, you you have to you have to kind of think like a thief. Yeah, that's what I like. So you so you so you could pull off the perfect crime then if you wanted to. I would never say that. <laughs> And I don't think I could. See, the problem with fraud is that, that fraud is committed by people on the short run. Mm-hmm. They think they can make money now, but they don't realize that a year, two years, five years down the road, something goes wrong, and somebody says, you know, there's something that's not right, and they start looking at paperwork. Mm-hmm. But nicely, not all fraud involves paperwork. And a lot of, uh, or, or certainly at many of the seminars I've taught, have been on the topic of how you rob a company but leave the books clean. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's kind of the stuff, I mean, you have to know how to do that in order to stop other people from doing it. If TV's taught me anything, you know, the, the, best, the best police officers who catch serial killers are on the ber- verge of being serial killers themselves. Well, if you having the knowledge and abusing the knowledge are two different things. Uh, would I be able to do this? I probably would. Would I do it? No, because frankly, it would sit on my conscience. But I was, in, in, in an absolutely inexplainable way, I was exposed to various business owners who were only too proud to let me know what they were up to. Hmm. And I can't tell you why they did, because I was working for the accounting firms doing their financial statements. But so they were basically admitting to committing a crime to the person who was going to catch them committing a crime? Well, we weren't looking to, to catch them committing a crime, but on the other hand, um, I, I learned in one, for example, one, one example, uh, I was at a, uh, unconsequently a, a, a furniture manufacturer, another one, this was year, years earlier. You're like exclusively in the furniture business. No, I, this was only two, and I happened <laughs> to be, the, the two were both bad. <laughs> yeah. And this was a successful firm, and they had been in business 25, 30 years. Two partners owned the company. And at that time, I was going in to do their, their, mo- their monthly financial statement. And they came over to me, and they literally took my paperwork from my hands and started looking at it, which, by the way, they're not allowed to do. Hmm. A client is not allowed to look at the, at, the, at the accountant's work until the accountant presents them with a formal statement. And they, they ignored that, and they took my paperwork, and they looked at my bottom line. And then, almost like in a movie, one partner reached into his back pocket and took out a little black paperback book, started flipping through it, opened it up, and the two partners looked at, the, looked at whatever was in that black book and looked at my numbers, and one partner said to me, all in all, it was a good month. Hmm. handed me back my work, put his black book back in his pocket. Now, I, I was kind of a little shocked, frankly. And what I didn't know was that right after that, one of the partners called my, my supervisor and said, well, you know, we're looking at the numbers. They're not bad. And, of course, he hadn't seen the numbers yet either. And he called me and he blamed me for letting them see, see preliminary numbers. So I knew that if I told them they also were holding up a black book, they would have turned against me Yeah, <laughs> because the client pays fees every month and had been paying fees every month for many years. I didn't pay any fees. I was paid a salary. So they didn't want to have any risk of me rocking the boat by somehow telling them that I knew something wasn't right. Mm-hmm. In, in effect, I didn't want to hear the words you're fired. Yeah. So you almost fell victim to abuse of company funds. 
oh, it was complete abuse of company funds. However, the two people co- committing the abuse were the two owners who, in a, one of the very rare instances, had been stealing together for decades and still apparently trusted each other. Hmm. That's weird. <laughs> That's oh, like oh, honor among thieves. Oh, over the years, I, I came to realize just how, how strange it was. It was extraordinary that two people worked together, stole together, and still liked each other and trusted each other. Yeah, no kidding. It's like you steal for, yeah, I imagine that they'd, one of them would steal and then the other one steal out of his pocket in like a big circle, like the snake eating his own tail. Uh, so now is this similar to, you know, what's commonly known as cooking the books or having two books? Uh, wh- what does that mean exactly? And uh, does this fall in, does this example talk oh, about that? absolutely. Uh, well, two sets of books and cooking the books are two different things. Okay. Cooking the books is actually manipulating the data that goes into the books to present the result or to achieve the result that the company wants to show, whether the result is real or not. And that happens fairly frequently, and I've actually taught numerous seminars called How the Client Manipulates Both the Books and the Accountant to Get the Desired Result. And I explain to accountants why they actually don't understand their clients and don't understand what they do. Hmm. Uh, They don't feel comfortable with it. Uh, The reason is that accountants overwhelmingly have never worked inside of a company. They become accountants, they pass their their licensing exams, they get their auditing experience, but unless you've actually run a company, uh, I have two scenarios for this, one of which is an accountant knows the same thing about a company's operations as a male gynecologist knows about what it feels like to give birth. (laughs) They they can watch, they, they can participate, but they've never felt it. Yeah. Uh, I learned that firsthand after, because I, I spent eight years in public accounting first, or excuse me, about six years before I, I got a position as a CFO for a retail chain that was in bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. And I was brought into the job, and within about 15 minutes of my first day, I realized how little I knew of a company's operations having done financial statements. Hmm. You know, there, there's, a, the, there's a whole lot of work that goes on that keeps a company running in order to achieve the numbers that the accountant look, looks at at the end of a period. And they don't understand how much work goes into it, uh, how complicated it is, and how you strive to both keep the company afloat and make the company look good at the same time. Yeah. And it would, you know, and, and there's, you know, it's almost like steroids in, in the major leagues, you know, in any of the major sports where, like, you, you have to do something to, in order to to be on the same playing field as everyone else. So if your company's not doing well, you know, your accountants have to make it look like you are so that you can be a successful company, especially if you're a larger corporation that has stockholders to answer to. Uh, yes, it, it actually works both ways. The management wants to make sure the company looks either as good as it can or as least bad as it can. And the shareholders have the same interest, of course, because if the, if the stock drops, they drop. And the accountants want to keep a client. Very important to keep a client. Keeps them alive. And accountants don't always want to see, and that's the important part, they don't want to see what's going on because they will always proudly tell you that their audit procedure specifically does not include fraud. Do you know what the major wow. cause is of financial statement misrepresentation? Fraud. Hmm. Why, why, why is that? That doesn't make any sense. Well, you want to, uh, for example, a financial statement is, has several purposes, one of which is supposedly to tell ma- management 
and the shareholders, if, if there are any, uh, of the exact financial position and how well that company is doing it profit-wise. The other part of it is to try to influence investors or lenders to lend money or to invest money in the company. Uh, another use of it is to be able to increase bonuses and salaries for top management. So if things don't look good, it hurts them, and if things look terrible, they can actually lose their, lose their benefits, lose their bonuses, and even risk losing their jobs. So you can imagine how much pressure there is on everyone below them to make the numbers look just right. Yeah. Well, it's, it's funny that there's, you know, to me, and as a non-accountant, non-financial guy, it just seems like the number is the number. Like, what are people massaging and manipulating to make look good? You know, if you sold one thing and it cost you X to sell it, or X to make it and X plus Y to sell it, your profit is Y, period. Like, why, why is there so much, why there's so many ways to manipulate the numbers? Well, when you buy something and you hold it in your hand and you sell it to someone else from the other hand, you have a very simple transaction. When you're running a company, you have issues of overhead and salary and contractual obligations. There is an entire myriad of demands on the money that comes in. And you have to be able to manage enough income and enough sales and enough gross profit, uh, including inventory if there is some, uh, to be able to come up with the numbers at the very bottom. There, there's an awful lot of items that go into it uh, to achieve the, bo- the bottom line. Hmm. I guess that makes sense, uh, sort of. Um, I mean, it's, it's just this, there's a lot of moving parts is what you're saying. Like the, the system is complicated, so it's not as easy as X plus Y equals Y. Oh, it, the, the system has an entire alphabet of, of potential in it. Uh, from the time you order the merchandise, the time you get it, time you convert it, if you do, t- the time you sell it, to the market conditions, to the collectability, and sometimes you don't even collect the money because someone goes bankrupt. Hmm. Uh, then you have overhead expenses you, that can be rent, etc. cetera. Uh, and to run an operation, that's, that's a lot of money that's going out constantly whether you sell or not. Hmm. So you have to be able to keep, to, to juggle, in effect, juggles is a not nice term for manage, your gross profit percentages and the amount of money coming in. Uh, when, when I've been involved in turnarounds, I don't care that much about the percentages. I care more about how much gross profit dollars come in compared to the amount per hour of operating expenses of the overhead. Now, most accountants don't really agree with that, but you have to be netting a certain amount of money coming in to pay a certain amount of money going out, period. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. It's like equilibrium. you got to balance both sides of the equation. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, the, and accountants like to use percentages, but you don't, you don't pay your bills with percentages. You pay your bills with money. Mm-hmm. That's true. Um, well, so now, now where do you come in on all this? Like, how do you backtrack? You know, if it's this complicated system and there's several ways to cheat it and there's several ways to hide it, what are you looking for? What are the red flags that pop up that, that make you say, that have you those gotcha moments? The gotcha moments come at you without you expecting them. Uh, in my interests and in my experience, I understand that certain companies in certain industries will act a certain way. And they'll have a certain number of suppliers. They'll have a certain number of customers. Uh, they'll have certain percentages or certain amounts that go to, go to various groups. Uh, when that starts to change, I begin to look at something. I begin to look at uh, accounts payable, for example. When the money, when there's more money in the bank than necessary to cover the accounts payables, why are the accounts payables getting larger? Hmm. Uh, why are accounts receivables 
getting larger when sales are staying the same because there has to be there has to be some kind of in, incongruity in, in other words I don't really use financial statements to tell me what I'm looking for because I know that they're that uh, they're hopelessly inadequate frankly but I use uh, beha- uh, financial behavior now by the way finances don't behave people behave using finances in other words, if you take a $5 bill and put it on a table, it's not going to do anything unless you move it. <laughs> that's, that's very true. I, I, I just hope the, the listening audience at home can follow that analogy. That's a, that one's deep. But let me, let me give you a quick one on this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, accountants like to talk about ratios. This, this is a material ratio. That's a material ratio. And, we don't, you know, and, and if it falls within our acceptable ratio, then it's acceptable. And then I say to them, fine, on, you know, how many of you sitting here have $5 in your pocket? Well, you know, pretty much they all have $5 in their pocket. And I say, is that a material ratio of your overall wealth? I certainly hope not. Uh, is it an immaterial? Is it, is it minuscule mater- material? Is it so small percentage of your overall wealth that if that $5 bill fell out of your pocket, would you go hungry tonight? And, of course, they all look at me like I'm a crazy person. But... They understand. I said, fine. I said, so if that $5 bill means so little to you as a ratio, why don't you just take it now and throw it in the garbage because you really don't need it anyway? And amazingly enough, not one person gets up from their chair to go throw out their $5 bill. And I asked them, why didn't you, if it's such a small amount that you wouldn't care if you lost it, why do you have it? Right. And somebody says, because I can spend that $5 bill. And I say, you're absolutely right. People don't steal ratios. They steal money and they hide it through your ratios. But then but then doesn't it become a number game where it costs more money to hire someone like you to recover that? Like if, let's say it costs them $7 to hire you to save $5. Doesn't that become it's not financially viable for the company to do that, right? Well, people don't hire to save $5. They may be hiring to save $5 million or $500,000 or even $50,000. No, but I'm talking about things that fall into. I'm I'm arguing your right. ratio point. Yeah, I understand. Okay. Well, if you take a company and that and after I, I give that that sort of oddball an analysis, uh, I show on the board if you take a private say for any company, but say a company shipping two billion dollars a year, and these days that's not that big, and they're actually buying in raw material about a hundred at least a hundred thousand a hundred million dollars a year. Excuse me, a billion dollars a year, and selling two and say the people in charge of it or the, the single person in charge of it makes an arrangement with one of their suppliers where they can overcharge and say, for example, they overcharge by 3 or 4% and that 3 or 4% turns into a couple of million dollars in the other person's pocket. Mm-hmm. When you blend it all together as total purchases, it may increase your purchases by half a percent. So no one's ever going to look at it, but in the meantime, somebody has actually robbed 2 or $3 million from that company very quietly. So when you discover that two or three million dollars that you just can't understand, you know, why, why it's not in the bottom line, but you're not even looking for it. Mm-hmm. And two or three million dollars is worth stealing. Yeah. One, it's, and it, I don't think you, I don't know what your, your fees are, but I imagine they're not two or three million dollars. No, exactly. And also you want to be sure that people who are doing this uh, are kept slightly off balance, not knowing when there might be an examination. Mm. It's like a drug test in, in sports. Like, you never know when it's going to happen, so you got to keep your nose clean. Yes, uh, absolutely. And I actually have written tests for companies that they can 
generally they're, they're brought in by their lenders that are what I call financial compliance tests where they can do certain research and come up with answers that will tell them if something's actually incorrect or not. Hmm. And, and it doesn't blame anyone. It doesn't, it doesn't attack anyone. It simply gives them information to look farther. So it's a diagnostic tool that is done to find out if there's something worth looking, looking into more deeply. Now, when, when you say financial behavior, I mean, so you're, you're taking numbers on a page generated by a machine and analyzing that data in order to find anomalies, correct? Uh, in, a, in a very limited extent, yes. Have you, do you ever go in and talk to people? I mean, do you ever do like the whole Columbo thing where you go in, talk to people, try to find out, you know, reading a person, reading what they're doing, uh, interviewing people? Can you do that? Do you do that? Very rarely. Usually when I do it, and if I go in and I start asking questions, they do some immediate research and find out what I do for a living. Hmm. And the higher up you go, the more likely that you're going to encounter cover-ups and lies than honesty. In, in fact, I learned one auditing technique very early in my life from one of, the, one of my supervisors, and he would go into a client, and he was the, a very, very nice guy. And he would talk to the clerks and the secretaries. He was one of their pals, uh, ostensibly. And I couldn't understand why he spends so much time talking to them. And even at lunchtime or on a break, they would all take breaks together, including with him. I said, why do you do this? And he says, he says because if I ask the CFO or, or, or a VP for information, they're probably going to lie to me. But he says, but the clerks and the secretaries and everybody else, they don't lie to me. And they know more about what goes on inside of a company than anybody else does. And over the years, I've come to realize that's correct. Yeah, so it would be worthwhile to talk to them unless, they're, unless you're, you're implying that they're in on the cover-up or that they would have the company's interest more at heart than... Right, and generally, they, will, they may even know about a cover-up. They, be, they won't be benefiting from it, but by knowing about it or knowing something suspicious is going on, by ignoring it, they keep their jobs. But sometimes you get somebody who gets fed up enough or who, who thinks that, that you know, if they can keep them anonymous, uh, they talk. Yeah. Um, so now how did you get into all this? I mean, were you a guy who created, you know, who committed like a big white-collar crime and then were rehabilitated by the system, sent out to fight the very people who you were once a part of? <laughs> I love it. No. No. <laughs> no. I'm pitching the TV uh, show here. It was. It, it actually came in a way that I can't even explain. But my first, some, my first time I worked full time for an accountant. I was 21 years old and had minimal accounting experience. I actually got the job at the very bottom uh, to learn something about, about accounting. And two weeks into the job, he sent me to one of his clients. It was a retail chain that had a finance division. They had about 25, 20, 25 and 30 stores and they would sell and collect the money from their customers. And he tells me, now this was very prestigious uh, engagement, he said, there seems to be customer cards all over the floor, go find them, put them back in, or in alphabetical order. So I was sure he, had, he was convinced that I knew the order of the alphabet. <laughs> yeah. And I went down there, and while I was looking for these cards, I see that the place is a shambles. And I hear them saying that money was stolen and this was wrong and they trusted these people. And they keep, you know, I keep hearing this stuff. And while I'm not involved in it, it certainly was fascinating. 
He calls me up before I go home at the end of the day. He said, before you go there, come in the office in the morning. I go in there, and he sits me in his conference room, which he only, he only used for very important purposes, certainly not for me. And he said, I want you to go in there. There's money that, w- that was missing. I want you to find out what was missing, how much was missing, how they stole it, and write up a report. Wow. And the only advice he gave me on how to do this was a piece I never forgot. He said, and never repeat the name of the company or the people involved ever. He told me not anything else about how I was supposed to do the work except to keep it quiet. And what company and was this that you were investing? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and um, Almost had you. I went in there, and I had absolutely no accounting experience that would have gotten me even 1% of the job done. But somehow I started tearing through documents, and I quickly realized, and I think I know why he sent me in and nobody more experienced than me, I think he sent me in because he was, he was certifying the audit and signing for it, and I quickly realized he never conducted an audit. He just signed for it because uh, none of the documents and none of the paperwork that I was looking through had ever been looked through and ne- ever even been opened. After three months, I discovered how much they stole, how they stole it, uh, and, and pretty much I had enough to imprison these. And it turned out there were two women who, who ran this department, they violated all the rules of internal control, which the auditor should have known about. They were able to manipulate the books for at least five years, including the auditor who was my employer, was actually still signing the audit, even though there were, there were gross errors in the, in, in, the, in the financials. And once I put the whole thing together, I turned it in, and it was certainly enough to have both women certainly arrested and convicted. And I didn't hear another word, but three or four months went by and he never told me anything. Well, I walked in once and the receptionist was sitting and he says, remember that, that fraud case you worked on? Of course I did. And she says, you know how it turned out? And I said, no. She said, well, I'll tell you. So I click, quickly realized that receptionists and secretaries know more about what goes on than most people. And she explained to me that they met with the two women. They're the owners uh, of the company were two sons of the founder who had passed away and they had inherited the company. And they had, you know, they were married, you know, kids in the right schools, right, nice neighborhoods, etc. And they met with the two women, and they showed them my report, and the women were unfazed. And they said, we can have you arrested. And the women apparently didn't even, didn't even break a sweat. And they said, fine, you have us arrested. And they, they showed them their defense. Their defense was two five-by-seven photos of each of those, the two owners with their mistresses. Wow. And the two owners walked away. They probably lost somewhere close to about four to five hundred thousand dollars in in that theft, and the two perpetrators got away with it. And in fact, when I wrote a book uh, originally for the seminars I taught, I ended up with the title in res- not, may, maybe not in respect to these women, but certainly in in recognition of them. And I titled it "Never Underestimate Who Can Cheat You." Because the three months I spent working there, the two owners would walk through and say, oh, they weren't smart enough to cheat us. And I thought, oh, yes, they were. So in homage to them, they got the title. I never heard another word. However, they had stolen enough money that they destabilized the company, and within two years, it was bankrupt. Wow. And they got away with it. And that was how I started. Now, did they stay on with the company? I mean, Oh, no. They they were fired. As, As soon as something was found out to be wrong, the two of them were fired. 
And oh, so I, they they use the mistress to not to protect their job, to protect the money that they stole against criminal conviction. Oh, absolutely. They you, once once you get into those situations, you don't want to stay on that job because they're going to look for any way to fire you or shoot you. Hmm. So you leave. Wow. Um, so I think that wasn't the craziest case you've ever done. Well, it, it was. <laughs> it, it certainly was the most interesting. Uh, but I've had others, and some of them are tragic. Uh, for example, when an owner of a company finds out that their child is stealing from the company. And then they have the child killed? No, uh, and that's the worst part of it. They don't want to do anything to the child because it's their child. Mm-hmm. They're not going to, you, you, know, you know, absolutely they're, they're not going to ever file any kind of a police report, though even though filing most police reports on this don't, don't accomplish much anyway. Uh, and you're telling them that, you're telling them about their child. It's very difficult, and they don't like to, to believe it because who wants to think that their child is, is stealing from them? But it happens more frequently th- than you want to realize. Uh, but most of these activities really happen among partners, uh, shareholders. Uh, people who have a lot to gain from a company will find a way to gain more. Mm-hmm. Wow. I mean, I guess that's the whole access and opportunity thing. I mean, who has more access and opportunity than someone who's related to you? Well, it, yes, it's access, opportunity, and authority. Can they actually do this? And if they have the authority, no one below them is going to argue. Even if they think it's wrong, they'll know it's wrong, but they're going to do it because that's how you keep your job. Yeah. Um, all right, let me ask you about some, some things I'm not, I'm not clear about in the, in the fraud world, mostly because I don't commit fraud. Um, but how does money laundering work exactly, and how do you catch it or stop it? Is that something that falls under the fraud purview, I assume? Oh, it, it sure does. It's become very popular now, and there are many anti, anti-fraud laws and, 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 and anti, anti-money laundering laws uh, that they catch companies at, and especially they're going after banks for it. Right. Uh, I have at the end of at the end of my seminars, I give them a primer on how companies will launder money. I don't want them to launder money. I want them to understand what it is they're looking at when someone is laundering money. And I warn them that yes, it is illegal. Yes, you can end up in jail or worse. Uh, what I really deal with is commercial money laundering, where a company is sending money around the world in order to get it back somewhere and to make sure that it looks like it's a normal business expense. Mm. And I show on a board how you can mix and match various banks and companies and, and countries and companies to blindfold anybody who's actually going to look to try to find uh, to, to trace it. And somebody will always say to me in the seminar, well, isn't that illegal? And I will say to them, for the past eight hours, I've been talking to you about everything that I've been talking about is illegal. Right. <laughs> They didn't make that connection. No. Uh, now, but how do you trace this stuff? I mean, if it's untraceable, how do you how do you trace it? Well, that's the problem. A lot of it is is untraceable. However, you look for patterns, and I learned how money was laundered by someone who I who I was able to determine was laundered was using laundered money, and I would trace bank transfers and bank patterns and to see where the pattern was and how often it was it was continued. And if they did it really diligently, it would be very difficult to find. And also, you have to both be motivated to find it, be paid to find it, and have someone who really wants to know if they have to find it. Mm-hmm. So many people would, frankly, rather look the other way than to find it, unless, of course, they themselves 
lost considerably because of it. But my, what you're really doing with laundering money has nothing to do with cleaning it. Has to do with disguising ownership. Mm-hmm. And if money and sources, is sent- right, and the source of it, money, like the ownership and the source. Well, the source may be may be very difficult to trace because it might be a legitimate looking company. Uh, say, for example, a company does business overseas. They they ship or they they especially if if they sell overseas or or if they buy from overseas. They can create companies overseas that will send them a bill for a certain amount of services and whatever, and they'll pay that bill. But in fact, you don't know that that company is, is somehow a straw owned by them, and it's in a different country. So the, com- the money goes there looking perfectly legitimately. That company then sends the money to a different company in a different country, and by the, by the time it hits that second one, the ability to trace it drops considerably. When they do it a third time, it's even harder to trace. Uh, they never actually, or if they, they knew what they were doing, they would never bring the money back to the same country because eventually it, it might be might be more traceable. So it stays somewhere else and comes in usually as an investment in something else or stays out of the country as an investment somewhere else in the world. And, and again, you have to be looking for it and knowing it exists to actually start looking for it. Now, aren't some people? I don't know. I don't know a lot about like the di- in the digital age with Bitcoin. But aren't people a lot of people using digital ways to launder money, digital cleaning techniques? Uh, I, I'm really not knowledgeable in it at at the moment. I haven't experienced it. Usually, it's actual money that gets sent and gets circulated. Uh, can it be done digitally? I think the digital age has opened up a whole new world to, to fraud. Do, do you think it's harder to trace if it's digital? And I mean, are there techniques to find it? I mean, can you well, find anything? Is there anything that's completely untraceable that even you can't sniff out? Yes, if, if money disappears, it has to be in small enough quantities. If, if it's considerable quantities and it has a collateral effect, if it, if it crashes a company, uh, then you have someone who has an interest in finding it. If there's any trace of it, any paper trail, any, any electronic trail that you can go from A, A to B to C, or even then you have to, may have to jump to F and then, and then come back to A again and, and go out from A, you can still do it. But the question is, how much, how much is it going to cost to do it, and what will be the potential benefit from doing it? Mm-hmm. And oh. there, there has to be enormous amounts of money to bother tracing it. Right. Uh, well, let me ask you about a couple scenarios that may fall into this category. Maybe some uh, famous scenarios that you can kind of weigh in on. Have you seen the movie Office Space? No. Well, in Office Space, which I guess is similar to the movie The Superman 4, what the guys do is they set up a virus that basically for every transaction that happens in the company, some of them are fractions of a penny. And so they round off the fractions of a penny the company does. Um, and just kind of discard that other amount. So what they do is they write a program that takes that excess half of fractions of a penny and puts them in an account. So, you know, there's thousands of transactions a day, you know, that can add up pretty quickly. Now, what, they, what happens is it adds up quicker than they thought and hijinks ensue, and they have to get rid of the money. How is that, you know, how does that work? I mean, are those fractions of a penny, do they really exist? I mean, is that real money? How is it, you know... Obviously, they're stealing from the company, but if they weren't, wouldn't that money collect in a reservoir? Is it like catching like runoff in a way? Well, if they were doing that, yes, of course, because if the money is <clears throat> leaving the company and going somewhere, there's going to be a trail that's going to show that the money is leaving the company and going somewhere. Uh, as far as fractions of a penny, I don't know how you can do it. I know certainly pennies can do it. There was a scheme 
and, and, and I think somehow covertly it still exists, where very large retail chains would pay their suppliers, say if they owed them $100,000 and a certain amount of pennies, they would actually reduce, they might reduce it by $1, 2 or 3 or $5 on, on the payment and pay a slightly smaller amount. And what they, they would keep doing this over and over and over again to the same customers, uh, to the same suppliers, because the suppliers generally for such small amounts, they wouldn't complain. They would just e eat the difference, adjust the books, and keep on going. And each time they got away with it, the amount that was cut off would grow slightly. And they would, ke they would keep doing this. Now, if it sounds like penny ante, you're talking at the end of the year, potentially several million dollars of improperly earned income that was done by cheating your suppliers who would rather be cheated a little bit than lose the customer. So is that illegal or is that considered renegotiation? It's renegotiation. No, nobody's going to get arrested for it. Uh, they, they can, of course, claim that, well, it was an accounting error and they blame the bookkeeper and probably fire the poor bookkeeper who had nothing to do with it. Uh, or they will come to an arrangement and, and pay it back and perhaps not do it again. Uh, there was a case I was in with uh, another manufacturer. They were buying fabric, uh, fabric by the rolls. And the production runs kept getting cut short because the fabric would run out before they expected it to be based on, on their calculations. And they went and they calculated back and forth to see if their calculations were right, and they were. And finally, they bought a fabric counting machine where you bought fabric, you'd put it on there, and it, it, would, it would run through it and tell you exactly how much was on the roll. In the first day, that machine paid for itself because they discovered that every, almost every supplier that was sell, selling them raw fabric was cheating them. Wow. And they were actually short shipping them all the way around, and they started sending out debit memos, uh, reducing the amount and demanding the corrections, and all of a sudden, the fabric started coming in correct, and the production runs were correct. And there's nothing you can do legally for that. Besides, you send them a, oh, so you basically treat it like, oh, you guys made a mistake, so send us a, yeah. a debit and we'll be fine. Th that, yeah, exactly. Uh, nobody will take responsibility, and it's really in no one's long-term interest to get into a squabble, especially if it's a supplier that you really need. So this, this is one of those things that falls into the illegal, unethical situation. It's not technically illegal, but it's, def but it's absolutely unethical. Yeah, to be illegal, you really have to be able to prove that there was a conspiracy and there was, there was, an, act, you know, there was an act of act, and no one's going to bother with it because they'd rather just, just gloss it over and go back to normal. It, it's in everyone's interest to not discuss it. Well, let, let me give you a scenario. So this is a real scenario. There's a... a, a, a a community that I'm that I'm documenting for a, a different project, and one of the things that happened is they had it's a very very small community, let's say 200 people, uh, but they have significant financial backers. So they have this money coming in. They have um, you know their own woodworking company, a steel mill. So they have like payroll that has to be maintained. So there's a group of people, a board that operates this this um, basically that works as a as a stock board, let's say, or a, you know business board. So what they did was they got caught cheating on something. So they were going to skip town. So they gave themselves retroactive pay raises, which essentially drained the accounts and left the business completely in shambles. I argued that that, that has to be fraud. There's something illegal about that. And the person who was explaining the story to me said, no, that's not, it's not illegal um, because they technically gave themselves legal retroactive pay raises. How, how in the world is that legal and is it legal? 
Is it legal as far as criminal? If they had uh, clauses in their contracts that gave them the authority to do it, then it wouldn't be tented, it wouldn't actually be illegal. Would it be unethical because it, it destroyed the company? Yes. Would you be able to sue them? Well, if they had the legal right to do that, even though they absolutely drained the company, uh, it, it becomes very, very squirrely. And even if you do sue them, first of all, who's going to pay to sue all these people? Yeah, they took all the money. They, they took all the money. Uh, what should really be done is up front make sure that you never write those kinds of contracts to begin with because if you think farther down the road as to where, where it can go wrong, which is part of what I do, is to see where, where, where your agreement may go wrong, even though nobody wants to think about it. Uh, where it may go wrong, may very likely go wrong, given enough time. Mm-hmm. And these people saw that it was coming to an end. They probably knew this long in advance, that they had, they had essentially a sweetheart agreement, and they simply declared, took advantage of whatever clause was in the contract that gave them the power to do this, and the likelihood of being able to sue them and win was minimal, because it wasn't going to be really illegal, because they had, they had the legal right to do it. If you sue them in civil court, the cost to sue them would be astronomical, and tragically, when you go to court and you have a jury, Juries who get financial cases are very often disappointed. They prefer murders and robberies. A, a did something to B, mm-hmm. as opposed to listening to, to days and weeks and weeks of testimony of this contract was here and this check was written there, and this payment went this way, and this one should have gone that way into a different position, and they start to fall asleep. And there are no judges around who have actual hands-on business experience to be able to listen and, and to, to understand what's going on. So you're really talking to no one. And then they would have to agree to arbitration where at least one of the three bodies would understand what you're talking about. So very likely it becomes so difficult financially and logistically that people say, what can you do? Wow. I mean, it's so, it's so amazing to me that, that this, this is pretty prevalent in today's business world. I mean, look at the financial crash of 2008. It, it, this happens all the time. And... And what what also bothers me is wh- why are these people going to white collar crime resorts? You know, like why why is this tr- treated so differently? You know, I understand the difference between violent crime and nonviolent crime, but it seems just as devastating. Uh, financially, it's far it's far more devastating. You know, there, there's an old joke that you make that you can steal more money from a bank by managing it th- than by robbing it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> tragically, That's in true. 2008, yeah. we saw it firsthand. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, and how many prosecutions have happened to the bankers since 2008? None. I don't think. Ha- has anyone? May- maybe one or two, and usually not the top people, because the top people will, will feed you somebody further down to go after. Yeah. Uh, so... You know, committing these, very often it's, it's difficult to get them pr- uh, prosecuted, and it costs a great deal of money to go after someone civilly, and the fact that you even win civilly doesn't mean that you automatically get your money back. It simply gives you the legal right to pursue direct action against that person to recover money that you can find. Right, that, that you can find. That you can find, and that you not only find it, but you can actually get access to it. And that's where the Cayman Island stuff comes in, because that's inaccessible monies, correct? Uh, Is that how that works? Well, to to certain extents, yes. If it's civil, uh, pretty much you're not going to get it back. And 
I, I do advise people, by the way, to keep money, uh, not illegal money, but legally earned and tax-paid money, offshore, concealed where nobody can get to it, simply because it, it's a deterrent from somebody who simply wants to sue you. Mm. If they get mad at you and they want to sue you because you have money, they'll have a lawyer who wants to sue you. But if they go to a lawyer to sue you and the lawyer says, how much do they have that we can get? And it turns out it's just it's a, it's a paltry amount. The lawyer is going to say, you know, do you want to pay me this amount to p- potentially get that? Yeah. So how do you how do you get one of these offshore accounts? Can you walk in and just get it, or is it are there fees every year? Or oh, it, you, you you don't do this for five or ten thousand dollars. You do this for millions. And there are offshore corporations that open up bank accounts. There are various countries in the world, even though they claim that they're going to cooperate with us, etc. They they find ways not to. And it helps to protect. Matter of fact, there was a famous European expression that said. You work. You you live in one. You you work in one country, but you keep your money in another one. Well, you no, know, no, that I get. But you said yeah. even if it's a paltry amount. So let's say I wanted to have an offshore account for whatever amount. I mean, could I could I get one? Oh, absolutely, very easy. If you have enough money to deposit into it, the bank will be only too happy to open up the account for you. What are these minimum deposits? I have no idea. Probably it it may not be that much. It might be a hundred thousand dollars or less. Hmm, that's it. If you if you want it, but on the other hand, um, having it and no, and, ha- and someone knowing that you have it is is something different. People would ha- will have these accounts under different names or, or different corporate names or names that can't really be traced back to them directly. Mm-hmm. There are various ways of doing it, and in some cases, there's the Isle of Man that that would have a program where you have a trustee managing your managing a corporation. And the, the country didn't at the time have treaties that would require them to cooperate with, with other countries. So if the money was in there and there was a, a lawsuit in another country and the demand was put to the came to, um, Isle of Man, they would simply take, take the, uh, the demand, tear it up, and throw it away because it was unenforceable. Wow. Um, that's insane. I and mean, this stuff just boggles my mind. Uh, let's do one last example. Um, because I don't know how these things work exactly, and I think the Enron scheme was a Ponzi scheme, right? Uh, no, actually, Enron, uh, I, I thank you for bringing that up. You're welcome. Uh, Enron was, in, in fact, in the when I began teaching fraud at UCLA in 1991, that was 10 years before Enron was known, but I knew about this structure of being able to conceal uh, expenses as artificial assets. And when they were brought down for it, what they, they call them off-book assets. Now explain the, that a little bit for the audience. What exactly? Ex- exactly. In like a, a fifth grade terms. Okay. An off-book, an off-book asset is phony. Uh, a company has income and it has expenses. Well, this company had far more expenses than it had income. So instead of calling it an expense, see, the, you have to understand debits and credits very briefly. Okay. But on the debit side, you have assets and you have expenses. On the credit side, you have income and you, and you have liabilities. Mm-hmm. Both sides have to equal. And that, that's the, as basic as you can possibly get. So on the, when, they, when they would pay an expense, instead of it's still a debit as an expense or debit as an asset, well, they, would, they would give it an account number, an, a classification number of an asset so that they would claim they were actually building up an asset. But then they would take that asset, supposedly, and assign it through book entries to some corporation 
that they, they claimed they owned, that they were working on, when in fact, and then they, they, they changed the name of it on their own company to a receivable or an investment in that company. There was no investment. There, wasn't, there was no company operation. It was simply a way of disguising an expense. But if you disguise enough expenses as assets, you reduce your expenses, and therefore you reduce your loss. So basically they were counting it double. So every, ex- every credit no. and expense were counting. No, no. They, 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 never, they never called it an expense. When they paid the money, they already had pre-planned that they would call it an asset. So but that's what I'm saying. It's counting double. So instead of, instead of being an expense, it's an asset. So there's assets in... So it's, it's basically you're taking your, your negative side of the equation and turning it into a positive. So your yeah. positive is twice yes. as big. That's right. Okay. They, they would increase. They would, so it looked like the balance sheet looked better on the asset side. Uh, Significantly. Than it, than, than, it, than it should have looked by using that same debit correctly as an expense. Got it. And I showed how that worked. And in fact, I learned about it uh, when I worked in the film industry many years ago. I was involved in a, in a film financing and, and development firm. And this was not done illegally. We were doing this work to be able to keep track of all the various movie projects that we were working on. So we would capitalize everything that we paid out for these projects, which was correct in keeping and building up the value of the asset and in keeping track of the asset. Well, at the end of the year, I expected the auditors to ask me why we had all all, all these these assets and and these values. And instead, they they never asked me a question about it, which kind of shocked me. Mm Mm-hmm. And then I, I thought, to m- thought, you know, well, in, in fact, we can probably take half the expenses and turn them into assets, and no one's ever going to say a word. We didn't do it. The company was privately funded, didn't have to report to anyone. It wasn't cheating anyone. It was just for our own management purposes. But I realized how you could easily corrupt that process, and the accountants wouldn't understand it because I knew how limited an accountant's understanding of the client really was. So when I started teaching this, this process, uh, especially after Enron, Enron went bust, and I didn't know that in my class at, at that time there was an entertainment attorney, and I explained how it worked. Essentially, I explained it in about 90 seconds, how you falsified an expense and turned it into an asset, and how you pushed it and, and how, you, how you changed its, its position to look like a receivable from a different company. And this attorney stood up and she says, you know, I took an eight-hour seminar on what Enron did and I didn't understand it. Thank you. Now I do. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was such a simple process yeah. that it makes you wonder how they got away with it. Well, how they got away with it, in my estimation, was that I think the accounting firm loved the client so much, they made so much money off of it, that they didn't want to look or see or know uh, what the client was doing. And as it turned out, the, the firm eventually was actually dissolved. The accounting firm was dissolved. Right. Some of the partners were, were punished for it. That was and Arthur Anderson, right? That was Arthur Anderson. Yeah. And they, but what really happened was the firm was dissolved. The people who worked for the firm went to work for other firms. And the clients of Arthur Anderson hired other accounting firms. With the same, with the same employees. Yeah, of course. Yeah, and the employees themselves really weren't the problem. It was the senior partners, because the senior partners should have known better, and 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 maybe they did know better, and they really wanted to hide their heads so they wouldn't know better, and some of them were punished for it. Yeah, and some people were on the take. Well, they were on the take because they were getting paid essentially about a million dollars a week for their for their services. <laughs> right, <laughs> when the company wasn't even making that. No. Um, well, this is 
This is incredible stuff, man. This is hard stuff to wrap your head around. Um, not much. It's like we haven't scratched the surface in an hour. Um, so now you you offer consulting fees. This is this is your promo time. What um, did you offer how to seminars or do you offer um, preventative seminars? Well, I offer how to and preventative at the same time. How to recognize it or not how to commit it. Well, I, you have to teach someone how to commit it to understand how they can catch it and also to understand how it eventually fails. Right. But most of my work is on the consulting side where I look at due diligence for investments, uh, especially involving potential Ponzi schemes. And I've I've written a guide on it called How to Spot Another Bernie Before He's Made Off With Your Money. (laughs) (laughs) And I look at company operations to see where there are are weaknesses in it, not necessarily fraudulent, but potentially fraudulent. So it tightens up the company. And I get involved where it, a situation has already happened. And in most cases, especially privately owned companies, the end result is we want you to find it, solve it, resolve the issue, restabilize the company, and never report it. <laughs> and because they're privately owned companies, they don't have any reporting requirements. Right. Because if you go public with what happened, the collateral damage to the company will probably be at least as bad, if not worse, than the fraud itself. Right. Man, it's a, this stuff is this is a tangled web, I'll tell you that. Um, so how do people get in touch with you? You have websites, yeah? Uh, I have a website. Of course, I have an email address. If you'd like it, I'll give it to you. Yeah. It's alex at redblackresearch.com. Red, red black, in other words, uh, the, the, the company's books show red, but they should be black, or they black because they should be red. So it's redblackresearch.com. Redblackresearch.com. Yes, dot, dot com. And I have a phone number if you'd like it. Uh, I don't like giving out phone numbers, okay, but maybe a, that, maybe a website. No, that's fine. The website is called businessfraudadvice.com. Uh, I'm also on LinkedIn. Businessfraudadvice.com. Advice. Mm-hmm. And LinkedIn. And I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, or simply contact me. I also have clients I manage whose incomes and assets I protect especially for them either dissipating the money and some people who make a lot of money tragically set fire to it by spending it right away. Mm-hmm. Uh, I help them not, I protect them from spending it right away and I make sure their obligations are taken care of as, as, as well as contractual problems such as taxation issues and I try to resolve those as best I, best I can in their favor even though I'm not considered to be a taxation expert. I do understand when something is, is past the point of being collectible or it's just not even possible. Yeah. So I, I protect people from bad deals because no bad deal ever looks bad until you're into it and it becomes bad. Right. Um, well, that is great. All right, so we have all this information. I'm going to put it on the website. And, um, you know, if you're planning on doing something and want protection or you think someone's going to swindle you, get a hold of Alex. Thank uh, you. Following stuff. So, Alex, thank you for being here and breaking this stuff down for me. Uh, and thanks, for everyone, for listening. Have a good night.